Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening, Lloyd. All of us are concerned about terrorism and the balance between privacy and security. And I found this book called The War on Terrorism, A Collision of Values, Strategies, and Societies by Thomas A. Johnson. And I decided that this was Very important to get him on our show because this is a great book. This is what it says on the back, just to give you a little bit of an introduction. It says, in order to eradicate terrorism, our nation must go beyond merely shoring up military strength. It must also effectively confront the fundamentalist ideology that fuels and supports the terrorists. The War on Terrorism, a Collision of Values, Strategies, and Societies, by Thomas A. Johnson, operates on the premise that the violent rejection of globalization at the root of terrorism must be addressed not solely by Western society and its armies, but also by those moderate and progressive Muslims and the religious leaders who are capable of rebutting the medieval underpinnings of the jihadist interpretation of Islam by promoting an understanding of both terrorism and the terrorists. This book examines the complexities inherent in creating a national security policy that successfully combats terrorist attacks. This is especially important as we enter this this new administration and what they're going to do with this whole issue of terrorism that is not going away quickly. Let me tell you a little bit about Thomas Johnson. He has an incredible background. Dr. Johnson is co-founder and chairman of the board of directors of the California Sciences Institute and also serves as a member of the board of directors of SANS Technology Institute. Dr. Johnson is one of the founding partners of the Forensic Data Center. He founded the Center for Cybercrime and Forensic Computer Investigation 
and the Forensic Computer Investigation Graduate Program. Additionally, he was responsible for developing the online program in information protection and security, and also founded the Graduate National Security Program offered at two of our National Nuclear Security Administration Laboratories in California and New Mexico. Currently, Dr. Johnson serves as a member of the FBI InfraGuard Program and is also a member of the Electronic Crimes Task Force. The United States Attorney General appointed Dr. Johnson as a member of the Information Technology Working Group, and he served as chair task force group on combating high-technology crime for the National Institute of Justice. Dr. Johnson was also appointed an advisor to the Judicial Council of California on the Court Technology Task Force by the California Supreme Court. He's published five books, at least 13 articles, and he holds a copyright on four software programs. He has so much more in his background, I just can't even get through it all. So you can find out more at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy and see all the great things that he's done. And I want to thank you for joining us all the way from the East Coast. Thank you so much. Well, it's definitely my pleasure, and thank you for the very thoughtful and wonderful introduction. Well, thank you for coming on, because this is a scary subject. And I have to tell you, as I read this book, I I got more worried, you know? I mean, I looked at the challenges that we have, and then the suggested fixes, and it's it's pretty overwhelming. I can just imagine our new administration trying to to deal with this. But let's get started. Tell us first about the Center for Cybercrime and Forensic Computer Investigations that you founded. Yes, uh, thank you very much, Mari. Uh, This was uh, an organization that I founded when I was dean uh, at the University of New Haven, uh, and it was a program designed to basically Uh, provide some education and training. The education was at the uh, undergraduate and the uh, master's graduate level. And basically what we did was uh, train uh, people who had an interest in working in the area of uh, computer forensic uh, investigations. And uh, setting this up, we also move forward to establish a training center so that we could train law enforcement officers. And I did this both in, uh, at our main campus, and then I created a satellite campus out in California. And so over the years, we trained uh, approximately 5,000 uh, law enforcement officers at uh, the various stages of their career. And this was in forensic computer investigation. Uh, Parallel to that, it became very apparent that uh, some of our needs were for more sophisticated uh, education and training, so we uh, created a program to establish uh, greater education in the area of information protection and assurance. And this program we mapped out to the National Security Agency's NSTSI standards, and we were fully compliant with that. And so both of these programs uh, later became important parts in the National Security Graduate Program that I established uh, as we basically have discovered a, a very clear need for 
people both in national security and homeland security to have some sensitivity and awareness to the potential targets that uh, we have in our critical infrastructure and how easy they can be uh, attacked through uh, the uh, use of uh, the Internet and through the use of uh, hacking techniques. Well, you know, Dr. Johnson, i got to tell you that you know, I sit uh, as a sheriff reserve here in Orange County, California, on the high tech services uh, unit that supports our regulars. And these guys don't have the training that, you know, they haven't learned. A lot of the people who've been in law enforcement for years really didn't learn about cybercrime. Do you know what I mean? They didn't, they don't have the skills. So, what a wonderful thing that you've developed because I know they're, they can't keep up with these criminals and they definitely can't keep up with these terrorists. Right? I mean, they're, they're, what kind of training are these terrorists getting? They're getting good training. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mari, I think you're quite correct in terms of uh, our uh, law enforcement communities. Uh, basically, one of the fundamental problems we've had is we have not established a career path for people who do become uh, very well trained and educated in this area. So typically what happens, uh, you get an officer who's fairly uh, conscientious and fairly good in this area. When it comes time for a promotion, they will promote them out of that area and into another uh, uh, unit, if you will. Right. This, this is not only a problem for our law enforcement, but uh, we also have this, a similar problem with prosecutorial agencies in which a person might be uh, assigned to uh, basically work uh, as a prosecutor working in these high uh, crime technology areas, and then at some point in time, it's going to necessitate uh, transferring him maybe to the family court or or some other particular area. And so we not only have this problem of coming late to the game with training people in these areas, we have the additional problem of uh, reinforcing these skills and continuing to train them because, as you've said, uh, this is an area where you just absolutely have to keep on top of uh, the new developments. Exactly. you got to have continuity. I know one of my friends who was the head of the economic crime unit here in Orange County, California, got promoted, you know, went up from, you know, to lieutenant and, you know, they want to go up and be captain and all that. And then he, he moved and went to the jails. So you're absolutely right. It makes abs- no sense to me that you're going to put all this training and get them to uh, up to speed and then somebody else walks into that role and they don't know what's going on. And then they have to try and get up to speed. And obviously the criminals don't do that. <laughs> they right. just get better at what they're doing. So it's, uh, it's horrible. Now, with, with all the electronic crimes that are happening now, and, and not just in our country, but in other countries, you know, Russian nationals and, and the, you know, the Nigerian fraud rings and all that stuff. How hard is it for the electronic crimes task force and what are the most critical issues? Well, this is a very good uh, question. Uh, and I think uh, the issues are uh, subject to change because of the uh, enormous uh, changes that are going on. Uh, in, in essence, we now live in a digital environment where basically it is so easy for people to utilize high technology and to utilize it in such a sense that they can take advantage of other people's trustworthiness and exploit it. 
the Electronic Crimes Task Force have uh, been organized throughout the United States, and I happen to have worked both with the New York uh, uh, office and the San Francisco office. And uh, one of the challenges for these particular uh, offices is that they basically put together some of their personnel. And, for example, in the, uh, when this whole area of computer crime and, uh, first began, we were talking about standalone computers. Now we're talking about networks that have to be very carefully uh, worked with. The uh, Secret Service have a group of agents. They call them nitro agents. And basically what these folks do is they specialize and they deal in the area of networks, network exploitation, etc. And so uh, this, again, is a, is a situation where they not only have to be very well skilled in the law, because uh, they have to, before they go out to an electronic crime scene, they have to have assurance that they have the uh, legal authority to basically confiscate a computer or confiscate a network and to do the search of uh, these particular uh, networks. So this then takes uh, into effect and introduces a brand new area of people that we need. While our training of law enforcement people has been very good in terms of uh, permitting them to identify and to go out and uh, collect uh, computers. The next problem is when you bring those computers back, someone has to go through and analyze and search the hard drives for the particular material. So this introduces another set of analysts that we desperately need to improve upon. So the Electronic Crime Task Force, uh, the FBI's CART team, have all done a wonderful job in uh, attempting to thwart some of the criminality that's occurring. But, Mari, you observed very correctly that uh, it is now a, a global problem. It is international in scope. And so we have problems that might uh, begin in Orange County, but might uh, go into Thailand and other particular areas. Uh, another problem that we've had is not only the financial aspect, but uh, this whole problem with pedophiles that have used this environment to basically uh, provide uh, pictures of, of uh, various youngsters. And so this has taken an enormous uh, hit uh, in terms of society, in terms of what we see. And so we're attempting to make certain that law enforcement agencies throughout the world can begin to work collaboratively and work in such a fashion that these things can be minimized and eliminated, if at all possible. Oh, I know. And it's scary when you think that the terrorists obviously have the same access to computers and the Internet as 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 any other criminal. Right. And, yes. That's and, right. and a lot of them are both criminals and terrorists. In other words, they want the money. They're 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 ready to steal and they're ready to to hurt any ideology that does not agree with theirs. So you've got this double whammy here of terrorism uh, through the internet and through computer crimes uh, aside from just you know using airplanes or god forbid you know uh, cruise ships or, or whatever 
But let's get on with your book. I, this book, as it's sitting here right in front of me, is pretty scary to look at. I mean, you've got this this guy dressed up as a terrorist with a mask on his face and his big gun. And, you know, it, it is it is the fear that all of us have. You you wrote this book, The War on Terrorism, A Collision of Value Strategies in Societies. And it, and it talks about many of these challenges that, that you, what we face here in trying to deal with terrorism. So what exactly prompted you to write this book, and, and who is it really for? Well, that's a very excellent question. And as I had the privilege of teaching uh, not only our graduate students, but also at the program that I established out at Sandia National Laboratory in Albuquerque, uh, New Mexico, in uh, Sandia Labs in Livermore, California, I wanted basically to provide the students with uh, as much background information as possible in this uh, particular area. So I wrote it for uh, our uh, students, and I hope that uh, it will uh, be of some assistance to them as they attempt to uh, try to conceptualize the challenges that they are working so diligently to uh, confront. Right. Well, I think this is really helpful for anyone who's concerned about these issues to read this. And we're all students of trying to stop terrorism, I think. Now, has the movement, and let's talk about the movement toward globalization, because, I mean, I get emails from people all over the world. You know, I got an interesting email just today from someone who told me, you know, one of my areas of expertise is identity theft. And one of my uh, emails that I received today was from a woman whose identity was stolen uh, she lives here, and her identity was stolen in Hong Kong and in England. <laughs> and, and you know, so we're talking about globalization happening with every type of cybercrime you can possibly think of and terrorism. So what effect has globalization had on terrorism? Well, we uh, have seen uh, in the uh, past years that uh, there's been uh, quite a few people who've really viewed globalization as an opportunity for uh, their respective countries to improve their financial status. Uh, it was a movement, basically, that uh, uh, began in such a way uh, so that all the nations throughout the world would be a little more effective in creating a worldwide economy that would benefit all of the participating uh, nations, uh, and uh, this would improve their economic structure and strengthen their uh, political uh, stability, if you will. However, globalization uh, entails this networked uh, economy, uh, which becomes uh, one which is based on unrestricted flow of information, uh, unrestricted uh, flow of uh, cultural values, and uh, that uh, is one of the problems that uh, we uh, saw emerge out of this movement of globalization, uh, because uh, we, we saw specifically when it comes to uh, al-Qaeda uh, in some of these terrorist organizations that they viewed uh, globalization as, uh, as an ideology uh, that uh, they simply were not going to accept. They see it as a form of colonialism. 
And so Osama bin Laden and uh, some of his colleagues have positioned al-Qaeda really as an alternative to uh, what they termed as this intrusion uh, of the United States into this particular area. Now, it's interesting to note that the CIA had uh, commissioned a study uh, uh, through the National Intelligence Council's Global Trends uh, 2015, and uh, it basically looked at uh, uh, at our future and basically what uh, the impact of the globalization process would have uh, over the next uh, few years. And uh, it's it's was very clear uh, in their particular study that uh, there would be resentment uh, of globalization um, uh, as as the Western intrusion into the uh, Middle East Holy Lands would be viewed uh, as something that uh, would be uh, non-acceptable to uh, some of the uh, uh, very uh, strident uh, uh, fundamentalists there. Now, some years ago, uh, Samuel uh, Huntington wrote an essay on the clash of civilizations, and one of his hypotheses was that the great divisions among uh, mankind uh, is going to become the dominating source of uh, conflict, and that this is going to become a very cultural conflict. His view was that the clash of civilizations will dominate global politics and the fault lines between civilizations will actually become the battle lines of the future. Hmm. So when you view that sort of a perspective and you also uh, recall that there's been very serious conflict uh, for more than 1,300 years between Western and Islamic civilizations, you can see that the real challenge for policymakers and uh, politicians and statesmen, not only in the United States but in uh, all countries, is going to be to try to generate some light, to generate some understanding, and, uh, and try to uh, avoid some of the uh, pernicious problems that might uh, occur because people have... Uh, clearly exhibited some resentment towards this movement towards globalization. And I might add, it, it is not only the area of uh, uh, Islamic fundamentalists that have, but you'll recall that there, uh, there were many riots erupting in many uh, cities throughout the world as the globalization movement began. So it's something that uh, is is going to take a great deal of, of understanding to deal with. And currently, given the uh, very tenuous financial uh, situation globally, it's going to be even more difficult to uh, uh, understand in uh, this complex area. Yeah, and the United States is seen as maybe swallowing up other cultures or changing other cultures or, you know, when our economy went bad, the whole world went bad, you know. Yeah. So it's like everything is our fault. You know, <laughs> when you were talking, it reminded me of, you know, I, I, I studied Spanish for many years. I'm fluent in Spanish. And I remember studying that, you know, the Moors occupied Spain, the, the Muslims occupied Spain for, I think it was seven or nine hundred years. And uh, when they, when the Crusades came, and uh, instead of destroying the mosques, the, uh, the, the Catholics who then took over actually 
kind of incorporated the mosques. So when you go to these beautiful mosques in Cordoba, Spain, you see mosques, but then, you, of course, you see uh, the the Christian uh, paintings and, of course, the Christ. And it's just kind of interesting that it, they didn't destroy <laughs> what the Moors had put. They kind of incorporated it. And um, just kind of reminded me of how are we going to respect each other's cultures and then uh, still have that uniqueness about ourselves and, and not get swallowed up. I think that's, that's the problem is if, if the uh, India and, you know, all of the Muslim countries, Afghanistan and Iraq, they're so afraid of us modernizing them to destroying what they think is their religion. It's uh it's it's far more than guns, isn't it? It's, uh... It certainly is. Now, in your book, you actually talked about some of the possibilities of decisions that were made in errors, and and I'm thinking recently when you know the former Bush administration had some was confronted with some real problems. Obviously, nine eleven, and thereafter, and they made some decisions and and jumped ahead. And you you drew a parallel between decision making errors uh, like. Like when, you know, when I was young in the Bay of Pigs with uh, President Kennedy and and some of the administration errors with the Bush administration. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yes, thank you very much. And uh, as I shape uh, my thinking on this, uh, please uh, understand that I'm not uh, attempting to uh, basically... Uh, condemn the uh, people that stood behind these things because they had some very serious policy issues that they had to uh, deliberate. And I think uh, many of them made mistakes. And so what we want to do is think about these mistakes that uh, did occur in such a fashion so that we can avoid them in future. So it's a constructive criticism, if you will. Well, that, uh, I think that's great. I mean, we should always look at history and see what happened wrong and never make those mistakes again. Oh, good. <laughs> well, in the book, I talk about uh, uh, groupthink, and uh, Irvin Janis did an extraordinary book in this area, and I certainly recommend it to your listeners. In fact, it's titled uh, Groupthink. Uh, and uh, in this book, uh, basically, he analyzes the uh, Bay of Pigs crisis during President John uh, F. Kennedy's term. And it's, uh, it, it's instructive to note that President Kennedy uh, faced uh, two enormously uh, difficult decisions that his administration had to make. And uh, both of these decisions were made with the same group of policymakers, the National Security Council uh, and his top advisors and uh, the various secretaries in the cabinet. And so when you look at the Bay of Pigs decision that they made, it was an extraordinarily uh, dismal and very poor decision. Uh, on the other hand, uh, when you look at the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, it was an incredibly uh, successful uh, decision that was made. So you have the same group of people uh, dealing with two enormous problems, and uh, how do we account for the fact that, uh, on the one hand, one was very unsuccessful, and on the other hand, the second was quite successful? Well, 
One of the things that uh, we have to be aware of, and I think that this has application for the Bush administration, and it certainly will have application for the new Obama administration as well, and that is that when uh, critical errors can arise in group decision-making processes, and this is something that uh, uh, Janice terms group think, and uh, basically uh, it creates a false sense of consensus. And so uh, this happens when generally a group is attempting to reach a decision under very stressful circumstances, and uh, the things that basically can contribute to groupthink is, in addition to stress, is the need for mutual support. In other words, as the decision makers are uh, coming to grips with the various elements of a problem they need to deal with, uh, there is uh, an inherent need for not only mutual support, but a need for approval. Uh, We also see uh, suppression of doubts begin to occur, a loss of critical thinking, a share of illusions, if you will, and a premature consensus. Now, what Kennedy learned from the first decision in the Bay of Pigs was that it was a disaster. And so when he eventually had to deal with the second uh, issue, which was the Cuban Missile Crisis, He basically encouraged his people to think outside of the box, to be very critical, uh, and uh, it turned out that it was a a very successful way for him to uh, uh, develop and bridge that particular thing. Now, the problem that the Bush administration uh, is going to have in this whole area of decision-making uh, and we can see what happened uh, with examples of Secretary of Defense uh, Rumsfeld and former Deputy Secretary of Defense Wolfowitz. Uh, and basically, both uh, of these gentlemen, uh, in essence, really marginalized former Secretary of State Colin Powell. Uh, and really undervalued the uh, suggestions of uh, General Eric Shininsky's policy uh, in terms of uh, uh, how many personnel it would take uh, to uh, uh, engage in the Iraq uh, theater. And uh, you may recall that Congress uh, uh, called for uh, Shininsky to appear before him And I think it was uh, the U.S. senator out of Michigan uh, that specifically uh, uh, pinned down General Shinensky and said, how many uh, personnel is it going to take uh, to uh, get in uh, this war? And uh, Shinensky, I believe, said something in the nature of 400 to 500,000. Clearly, uh, this was at total opposition to what uh, both uh, Secretary Rumsfeld and uh, Deputy Secretary Wolfowitz uh, had uh, suggested. And uh, so this became a real problem. Now, uh, you will recall that uh, Deputy, uh, well, that Secretary uh, Rumsfeld was moving to uh, uh, reorganize the military so that it was going to uh, fight in a much faster, lighter capability. So he saw 
something on the lines of 130,000 to 150,000 personnel uh, that would be needed for the uh, attack. And, of course, uh, when uh, General Shininsky said 500,000, this is not exactly what uh, the secretary wanted to hear. It turns out, at least in my judgment, that both of them were correct, but for different reasons. Mm -hmm. I think Rumsfeld's uh, initial suggestion of a of a fast attack force uh, did prevail, and uh, the war uh, really uh, uh, came to a close. Well, the attack came to a closure quite fast. Uh, General Shininsky's um, uh, was correct in the sense that uh, we did not have enough personnel to stop the looting and to really secure the area. So both had, uh, I think, uh, very good points uh, to bring up. But um, uh, the important thing is that uh, we have to have room for different points of view and different uh, perspectives here. And so I think that that was one uh, uh, piece that was very important. Uh, Another aspect uh, that I might add of groupthink that... uh, uh, was very uh, uh, difficult for the Bush administration, uh, centered upon uh, the uh, proclamations that uh, were issued uh, by then uh, Ambassador uh, Bremer. Uh, Ambassador uh, Bremer uh, basically uh, made a decision to exclude members of the Ba'ath Party uh, and to exclude command officers of the Iraq army from uh, participating in any role to restore order to uh, Iraq. Well, it turns out that uh, Lieutenant General Jay Garner, who was there assigned to try and precipitate and bring uh, some order, this really undercut uh, Garner uh, substantially. And so uh, the Undersecretary of Defense, uh, Douglas Feist, uh, issued a, a policy a directive uh, which supported uh, this uh, debathification uh, order. And so when you take a look at uh, the uh, particular aspects of that, you can see that there was disagreement uh, within the inner circle of policymakers here. Uh, But when it comes down to the actual people in the theater, in the field, it has very profound consequences. So one has to, when you're dealing with major issues such as this, you have to avoid groupthink. You have to encourage people to offer uh, the challenging uh, perspectives, and perhaps if uh, General Shinensky's views were more appreciated by uh, Deputy Secretary Wolfowitz uh, and others, uh, we may not have had uh, some of the uh, disruptive after uh, uh, area problems in Iraq as we did. Well, hopefully that'll be lessons for Barack Obama. You know, what I've read about him, and I don't know that much about him except what I've read, is that he is a mediator type. He has brought people together, and hopefully he will listen to all sides, make his uh, cabinet listen to all sides as well. If you just want to only have consensus, then you're going to end up like like what just happened in the Bush administration. So it's pretty scary. (laughs) 
(laughs) Can you explain how the Internet has assisted terrorist organizations and helped them be much more powerful than they would have been without it? Uh, Yes, thank you. Uh, And I think that uh, the Internet has uh, had a very transformational uh, impact upon uh, this whole area of terrorism. And uh, I think it's it's been uh, absolutely incredible as to uh, what it has uh, actually done uh, uh, to uh, uh, deal with these problems. Uh, for example, uh, the people that participate uh, in terrorist activities uh, today uh, now have an opportunity to collect information uh, and to collect it uh, in such a fashion that they can uh, start using it in an intelligence-gathering device. Uh, they can also uh, provide information in such a manner that it is helpful in recruiting new terrorist uh, members uh, to uh, justify a rationale, if you will, uh, for example, uh, Hamas has a website that is, um, has, uh, it's an incredible website. It's uh, in nine different languages. Mm. And uh, you go to that website and you can basically get information as to uh, how to join the organization, what it's attempting to do. Uh, Hezbollah has this. Uh, Hezbollah has a website where it also keeps track of uh, the people that are killed, wounded, or injured. Uh, Some of the terrorist websites uh, out there uh, are using uh, video streaming uh, methods to uh, actually show uh, a variety of of, uh, assassinations that they do Mm -hmm. and perform. Uh, so when you look at the Internet, it's become an instrument uh, that has been so useful in the sense that uh, people can basically justify, they can recruit new members. Uh, it makes them possible to uh, use a virtual terrorist cell. So this whole area of decentralization uh, is basically accomplished by use of uh, computers. Uh, They also can use computers uh, to uh, download viruses, and they can uh, launch uh, Trojan attacks uh, by use of a computer. Uh, We've seen just an enormous range of ways in which uh, these terrorist organizations are now uh, using it. One of the computers captured uh, by al-Qaeda uh, operatives um, uh, had uh, engineering and structural uh, architecture features of a dam which was downloaded uh, on uh, their particular uh, computer. Uh, so the digital environment uh, that is out there now has uh, basically uh, provided uh, just such uh, uh, an incredible uh, area for terrorists to operate. In fact, those people in the military have been trained uh, to look uh, for what Clausewitz, and when I say Clausewitz, this is an individual whose battle plans have been studied uh, time uh, immemorial through West Point, through the U.S. Army War College, etc. And Clausewitz always suggested look for the enemy's center of gravity. 
or position an attack against an enemy in such a manner that you're going to ultimately defeat them. Now, in the case of al-Qaeda, we've assaulted bin Laden's safe havens, his finances, his leadership, uh, a variety of things of that nature. But bin Laden, in the way he has used the Internet uh, and formed his organization, has turned Clausewitz on his head because al-Qaeda has no center of gravity in the traditional sense. That is, there's no economy, there's no cities, there's no homeland, there's no power grids, there's no regular military. And this is why the Internet has proved to be such a valuable asset uh, to uh, uh, terrorist organizations. And it's, uh, it, it provides the opportunity for them to basically send out their messages, recruit members, uh, recruit people, uh, and uh, provide them with uh, abilities to use attack tools. Right. So are they, are these terrorists, they're obviously becoming very techy, right? They're very, they're very uh, engineering wise. I mean, they really have to know what they're doing, especially when, I mean, I think about the concerns of them, like taking down a whole power grid. I mean, if they really want to destroy the United States, they don't have to blow up a plane or blow up something like that. They could just get a whole power grid to go down the whole East Coast, the whole West Coast, right? I mean, they really... That's something that, that I think is, is uh, possible, isn't it? Well, uh, we're very vulnerable in terms of our uh, uh, power grids uh, because we have uh, uh, had experience with accidental uh, uh, power grids going down, and it's created enormous problems for us. And so if someone starts focusing to attempt to take down these power grids, you're absolutely correct. Uh, it would have an impact uh, upon all aspects of society. So when you look at our nation, okay, we are so strong because of our critical infrastructure. Uh, and when you look at the infrastructure, it is the electrical grid system that probably is the foundation, the biggest uh, vulnerability that we have, because without the electrical uh, grid system operating and working, uh, your banking systems are down, your food production and storage systems are down, uh, your transportation does not work. Uh, virtually all jobs in educational institutions would be hampered. And so we have every, to... Play. Every business. Every That's business. Right. I mean, my business would be down. So, I mean, really and truly, if the, if they don't want globalization and they don't want our society to influence them and us to have the power and the influence that we do, that is the place for them to get us. Yes, you're right. I mean, they don't have to just go and do a nine, another 9-11 or, you know, going off the Golden Great Bank. Uh, the Golden Gate Bridge or something. It's that, that to me is why it's so important that we really put all of our energy into protecting ourselves, you know, in terms of all of the uh, infrastructure that we have that's digital. That to yeah. me is the craziest. I mean, I mean, just if, if our computer is down for a day, we're, we can't do any work here. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? I sure do. So I don't know how much how how much effort is there to protect the whole digital infrastructure. Well, uh, there is uh, continuing uh, concerns on this, but you have to realize that all of our 
uh, infrastructures are not government-owned. They're basically uh, 80 to 85 percent uh, uh, private uh, uh, infrastructure, and so it requires some cooperation by both the government and by uh, the private uh, uh, companies to work together in these uh, areas. And uh, it's it's been difficult. We've uh, we've had the good fortune, uh, presidential decision directive 63 and 66 by former President Clinton, really took the uh, uh, first steps to trying to protect our infrastructure, and uh, they identified eight critical infrastructures. Uh, this was later expanded on by the uh, Bush uh, administration to 14 infrastructures. But the one we're speaking of, the electrical uh, grid system, power grid system, is probably the most uh, in, important one uh, to protect. And so the government's been trying to uh, get people uh, in this area, and but we need to do a much better job. Mm. Let's kind of switch gears a little bit and talk about the terrorist groups in, in sure. terms of the whole ideology. Um, they seem to be more religious-based than some of the terrorist organizations of the past. So can you describe the role of the religion of religion in the terrorist space, such as Al-Qaeda and Hamas and all those? Uh, yes, you're, uh, uh, you're right. Uh, this has been quite a uh, change. Uh, when we look at uh, terrorist groups in, in the uh, past, uh, the ideology has uh, basically been one of, uh, shall we say, uh, uh, sort of a Marxist uh, ideology. Uh, we, we have seen that clearly change, and we have seen now uh, religious-based uh, 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 motivation uh, taken uh, precedent. I, I suspect in one measure you can attribute it to when you look at the terrorist organizations of the Middle East, okay, uh, you can attribute the fact that um, there's a religious uh, orientation to it because uh, basically uh, the rulers in the Mideast were so powerful and forbid uh, so much that they the only place people had to talk was in their uh, mosques and in their religious areas. And so they had the opportunity uh, to meet and to discuss and to share their uh, points of view. And as they did this, uh, it became uh, apparent that uh, some of the Middle East countries faced the uh, dilemma of, uh, okay, if, if you can provide money uh, to some of our uh, religious organizations, we basically will not attack you, and we will basically focus our areas of interest on other particular groups. And so the fervent nature of meeting in some of these uh, areas uh, took on this religious area where you could uh, uh, get training uh, of youngsters uh, where they could express their points of view and disagree with things. The other part of the problem that we soon uh, go back to the uh, problem of uh, dealing with 
the Israel-Palestinian uh, situation. And so that has clearly flavored some of the religious uh, motivation that we've seen in some of these uh, terrorist organizations. But uh, it's, it's certainly uh, been apparent and is going to continue to be. Mm. We're speaking tonight with uh, the author of The War on Terrorism, A Collision of Values, Strategies, and Societies, Dr. Thomas A. Johnson. He is terrific, and, and he's coming to us all the way from the East Coast, and he's been very involved in all sorts of issues with regard to terrorism and cybercrime and forensic computer investigations, and, and we're thrilled that he's with us tonight. Let's go back and talk, Dr. Johnson, about the results of uh, September 11th and how that has changed the way we are in this country. It, that, that assault has, has caused our country to set up a whole different approach to intelligence and, and the homeland security. Why don't you talk to us about that? And, and how successful is that change? Well, uh, the change is, uh, is still in progress. And so uh, by some measures, it would be premature to say that uh, we've had a great deal of success by others. Uh, we could certainly suggest that. But one of the problems is you have no evidence placed in front of you because uh, if intelligence organizations are successful, uh, then you never hear about uh, their operations. It's the ones that uh, you hear about where they become very unsuccessful, and so that's one of our problems. But uh, after the 9-11 uh, situation, we discovered that we had to basically work in a much more cooperative fashion. And so we have this situation of uh, federal agencies that deal in national security, that deal in classified material, you have local agencies that are dealing in homeland security and that have to cooperate uh, uh, with the feds because the feds cannot do this on their own. Uh, and so you've got a collision here of a need to know with a need to communicate. And one of the problems that we consistently hear from our colleagues at the state uh, and local and municipal levels is simply the fact that there is not enough sharing of information. So one of the thrusts that were taken early on in the Bush administration was to create these joint terrorism task force groups. And I'm sure, Mari, you're familiar with this in Orange County in this area, where you take an officer uh, from uh, the Orange County Sheriff's Department, you take some local officers, and you assign them to work with the FBI's uh, Joint Terrorism Task Force unit. This person has uh, been deputized as a U.S. Marshal, Deputy U.S. Marshal. They've uh, been given a clearance so that they can have this information. However, in many cases, they can't share that information with some of their colleagues in the department, and so that's created some problems. So the issue that we have to confront uh, uh, much more vigorously is uh, this need for classified information, the security of it, 
because as we need to communicate and share, this is a barrier to our sharing of, uh, of, of information, if you will. Uh, in addition to other situations, we saw the Department of Homeland Security emerge with uh, approximately 190,000 personnel uh, 22 federal agencies were wrapped around this department, and it was the largest uh, federal organization created since 1947 when we created uh, the uh, Department of Defense. And so when you create a new federal agency of this magnitude, you're going to have enormous problems. And some of the problems that uh, uh, that occurred were problems where people just did not want to lose their uh, position, if you will. They did not want to lose the opportunities that they had worked uh, for over the years. And so there was a lot of uh, interpersonal problems that occurred. Uh, there were a lot of legal issues that were brought up uh, in terms of civil service issues, things of this nature. Turf wars. That's right. <laughs> yes. Politics. <laughs> you, All the people you, problems, right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and so as we move forward, we've got a lot to learn from what the military did. Uh, the military some years ago uh, went through a jointness doctrine. And so they started working together. They started cooperating and sharing. And so we've got to do that with the Homeland Security in a much more effective way than uh, we've seen happen so far. Well, let's switch gears now and kind of get into the privacy issue, which is, you know, our democracy, we, we have a, a constitution, right? And um, the, the formulation of the national security policies on counterterrorism terrorism um, really still needs to meet the standards that are in our Constitution, but we've seen a lot of backlash about that. Um, our recent experience in confronting al-Qaeda has given us a lot of challenges between security versus privacy versus civil rights. You know, how do we balance privacy and security and civil rights? How, how do we do it? Oh. Boy, this is really a difficult uh, question uh, to respond to, and it's a question that has to be probed much more uh, uh, frequently than what uh, we've seen. Um, you will uh, probably recall that today uh, the uh, new Obama administration had uh, issued uh, uh, some uh, items uh, that they were embracing on their uh, White House uh, Office of Homeland Security, and they had indicated a variety of things that uh, they want to do uh, under this administration, ranging from how they want to defeat terrorism worldwide, how they want to prevent nuclear terrorism, uh, how they intend to improve intelligence uh, uh, capabilities, uh, but at the same time, uh, they uh, are sensitive to the fact that they want to protect civil liberties. One of the problems they're going to have is they basically want to create a senior position uh, to coordinate domestic intelligence gathering. And they want to establish a grant program to support thousands of more state and local level intelligence analysts. Now, 
this country has had problems in past with uh, intelligence uh, collection uh, at our domestic areas and levels. And so this is something that this administration is going to have to be very, very careful on, because you're quite right. We have, under our Constitution, a right to and a responsibility to protect the rights of our citizens. Uh, in fact, the whole function of a Constitution is to basically uh, control the government and uh, make sure that the government does not uh, overreach its uh, particular uh, responsibilities, if you will. So how uh, they're going to begin uh, moving forward with domestic intelligence uh, gathering operations is going to be very, very uh, touchy, because if they're seriously thinking of getting thousands of intelligence agencies, uh, analysts, I should say, from different uh, uh, organizations, uh, it's going to have to be monitored in such a way so that people's privacy is protected, uh, so that the constitutional rights are protected, but yet we have a responsibility to protect our public, and so we have to obtain information and intelligence on uh, any activities that could disrupt uh, our uh, society. Well, you know, the Bush administration trampled on quite a few of our civil, our civil rights and our constitutional rights. And, uh, you know, I mean, one of the things that we're hoping and that we're hearing from the Obama administration is that there's going to be more transparency. So it's going to be hard to be transparent and, and also be sleuths, you know, so to speak. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's scary. Lloyd tells me we don't have much time. So is there any, what optimism do you have for the war on terrorism? Why don't you just kind of round that up for us? Well, thank you very much. Uh, the optimism I have is I uh, have had the privilege of uh, educating and working with uh, uh, our students and uh, teaching at the Sandia National Laboratory. I have such optimism for the commitment of uh, people. I've dealt with law enforcement officers and with military, and I know their value system is such that they will do everything uh, within their power to basically uh, protect us, and they are very sensitive to these issues uh, that we've been discussing. And so I think uh, our future is in good hands because as long as our educational systems continue to develop the type of people that uh, we've uh, been privileged to work with. I'm very optimistic. Well, Laurie, I want to thank you. Well, I want to I want to thank you and I'm thanking you for for teaching these people to enlighten them, to help them to be creative about solutions and thank you for writing the book The War on Terrorism: A Collision of Value Strategies and Societies by Dr. Thomas A. Johnson. Thank you for joining us. And we'll have you back again. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Minervine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, your host of Privacy Piracy. Join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here. And also visit our website at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy, where you can see our upcoming guests, download podcasts, listen to archived interviews, and 
Write us emails about what you want to know about privacy. Thank you and good evening. Stay private. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. 